This is the Flatlining Podcast. I got a lot of numbers for you, Frank. So CNBC viewers, listeners, readers, they know just how much healthcare costs have risen, but we have the fresh numbers out. Now that we have kind of some of these movements here, right, to highlight just how bad it's gotten if that recent inflation data wasn't enough to trigger you. Here's the latest from the Kaiser Family Foundation. They do a lot of tracking and research of the healthcare business. If you are covered by employer-sponsored healthcare plan, family premiums have now risen by a whopping 47% over the course of the last 10 years, which depressingly has outpaced wage growth, which has grown about 31%. And then in that span, general levels of inflation overall up about roughly 23%. Now, to put some dollar numbers around those percentage moves, the average family has an insurance premium of just around $22,000, a little north of there right now. The employees themselves cover roughly $6,000 of that cost, and then employers put the rest of the bill. And the amount that you're on the hook for if you end up needing to tap into that healthcare coverage, the amount you need to cover out of pocket before that insurance kicks in, well, those so-called deductibles are up 68% in the last decade, now it's about $1,669 you got to cover from your own side of things. That's up from $991 over the course of the last 10 years. So I guess what it comes down to is, Tyler, Frank, we know that health insurance costs a lot, but it is a whopping, whopping lot more than it was just 10 years ago. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Hamley from Flatlining.net, and with me, as he has been, is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies, Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you? Uh, not bad for a Monday. I hope you're well as, as well. No, that's that's good. You know, Mondays can be can be tough. Of course, Monday's the day we record this program, and yep. you know, it's it's a good way to start off the week. I think, um, although sometimes I, I wonder if it puts us at a slight disadvantage of just not knowing what's going to come by the end of the week. That's true. It's changing pretty rapidly. Well, at the beginning of this program, we played a clip from uh, CNBC, and that clip actually was from uh, November of last year, and it had a lot of data from the Kaiser Family Foundation about the rising healthcare costs that most Americans are facing. And we wanted to spend some time breaking down uh, what it is that we are actually paying out of pocket. You know, we talk, Washington talks a lot about rising drug costs, but one of the main factors is driving up healthcare right now is high deductible plans and large out-of-pocket costs. You know, the monthly premium for these plans might be lower, but uh, is that saving the patient money in the long run? And that's what we wanted to dive into today. And so first, I guess I wanted to start out by doing a bit of a primer on where Americans can get insurance. And I'll let you start off with that, Ron. Sure. So um, there's really a few categories that you could fall into if you're in this country and where you could get insurance. You know, obviously, we've got the governmental um, financed and supported plans, Medicare and Medicaid which handles the elderly and the, the, you know, the very poor in this country. Falling in the middle of that, your options are you either get it from your employer um, through what we call an employer-based plan where the employer pays some or all of the premium. Um, you may have to pay part of that premium or for family members, and then you're going to have to pay some out-of-pockets and deductibles, co-insurance and co-pays. Um, or you can buy insurance yourself on, let's say, the marketplace, one of the uh, exchange marketplaces where if your employer doesn't offer it, you would buy that. And, and some or all of that premium may be subsidized by the government, depending on your annual income. Um, there's also some of the faith-based programs which really aren't insurance, but sort of act like one. So those are primarily the, the areas where you're going to get insurance, either Medicare, Medicaid, employer-sponsored, self-purchased on the exchanges, or maybe one of the faith-based um, cost-sharing programs, if you will. So then out of pocket, looking, looking at that, what you would be paying for your monthly premium and what you might be paying for your deductible, of, those combi of the combination of those, which it has the least amount of cost for out of pocket, generally? Um, generally, 
the amount you'd pay out of your paycheck for the for your portion of the premium has the least amount because most okay. of those plans the deductible um, co-insurance will be significantly more now there are very um, skinny plans if you will are employers who only pay for the employee and let's say the employee has to pay for the rest of the family if they want to bring their family under the insurance those can be very expensive you know out of your paycheck but the big focus that people have is on how much people have to pay for their deductible or their co-insurance and how problematic that can be if you get sick and that i guess then for the medicare medicaid programs as well you're also having to deal with a deductible of some sorts or are those subsidized in a different way well, Medicaid, you know, mo- some state Medicaid plans will have a very small copay, a two dollar mm-hmm. copay per visit or whatever. Medicaid typically doesn't have very much um, out of pocket for the individual, and it makes sense. Those individuals are already, you know, at or below the poverty level, so they wouldn't right. have any ability to pay anyway. Medicare, straight Medicare, can have some fairly substantial um, patient out of pocket. Just why the Medicare Advantage plans have really sort of risen in, in, in fame, if you will, because they typically cover a lot of that or, or all of it, you know, completely. So we have these plans that we can get from different places, either direct from the insurance company through our employer, uh, the Medicare Medicaid programs or some of these health share programs. We'll focus mostly on the insurance ones because I think those are, I mean, that's what the majority of Americans have is is some sort of traditional insurance. And I want to break down the different types of plans that are possible to get. And the three that I have on here on our sheet, and you can please throw in others if you can think of others that make more sense to talk about, are, are PPO plans, HMO plans, and then how HSAs factor into both of those. And I guess I'll start it off by throwing off, what, what is a PPO plan, and what are some of the um, advantages to that type of plan? So typically, a PPO plan is a plan with a great degree of flexibility for the, you know, for the consumer. Um, there is usually a network of providers, hospitals, doctors, etc., if you go to one of those doctors or hospitals, you get better benefits, meaning typically a lower deductible, a lower mm-hmm. co-insurance, lower copay. Um, but you can go to anybody you want to. So if there's a particular dermatologist that's not in your plans network, you can go there. You're just going to have to pay more out of pocket, but you still have some benefit for going there. And you typically don't have to do the mother may I or get a referral from your primary care physician to go to the dermatologist or the orthopod, et cetera. So it's mm-hmm. a lot of flexibility. Um, it offers benefits sort of for all providers as long as the service is covered. Um, and so from that perspective from the consumer, it's a very um, it's a very easy plan to use. The disadvantages are it tends to be a little higher cost and the patient can face a higher out of pocket if they're going to somebody out of network, et cetera. So then what's, so that's what you said, the disadvantages, you got a higher premium, a higher out of pocket. That is, would you say that's the most common type of insurance plan that we would have now? Yeah, the, the numbers are clearly, there's a significantly more people covered by what would be called a PPO than an HMO. HMOs um, sort of gained a little traction in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and then they really sort of dissipated quite a lot. There's there's just nowhere near the same numbers in, in HMO as there is PPO. So then let's get into that. What, what is an HMO and, and what are some of its advantages? So the HMOs were to be more highly managed care. And that's really where sort of the managed care terminology came from. Mm-hmm. And the thought was that if we can control a lot of things through the insurance company, we can lower cost. And to some degree that works. So in the HMO, typically you have to have a primary care physician. Typically you have to um, get permission from that primary care physician before you see a specialist. That was designed around keeping you know, unnecessary visits to the orthopod or to the dermatologist or et cetera from happening, realizing that many primary care physicians can deal with things like sprains or a sore back or you know, um, low-end dermatologic issues. Um, in addition, typically in an HMO, you don't have out-of-network benefits, and the network might be smaller. And so if you go to that out-of-network dermatologist, or if you go there without a referral, you don't have any benefit. you got to pay that whole bill yourself. So 
The advantages of HMOs are typically lower premiums. Um, the disadvantages are, um, you know, there's a lot more restrictions. Now, part of the reason why the HMOs sort of fell out of favor is we are a society that is used to a lot of choice and a lot of freedom. And so it didn't really set well with the consumer who said, well, look, I want to decide when I go to the orthopod. Or I don't want to have to pick from one of your four doctors. I have this doctor over here I really like. Um, and that's the reason why they really never gained as much traction as people thought they were going to. So looking back at the reverse of that, why were they introduced to begin with? And what was the, the main, I mean, you mentioned the main purpose was to try and bring costs down. And you said they had some level of popularity before they dipped off. What was their initial popularity from? Well, so healthcare in general, and if you look back over the last, you know, several decades, has some, you know, some peaks and troughs of what inflation and healthcare costs looks like. So in the, you know, the, the economic boom of the early 80s, et cetera, healthcare costs started to really ratchet up. And so the HMOs were born out of a reaction to, you know, skyrocketing healthcare inflation. And it was a way that insurance companies told employers, we can help control this cost for you. Here's a way to attack it. So um, that's, you know, that's when they saw it or had their first popularity and where they came from. And then healthcare inflation started to tail down a little bit and we stopped worrying about it. It's sort of like, um, you know, people who go on fad diets when, mm -hmm. you know, their weight goes up and then they, you know, they do fasting for two months. And I'm not saying fasting is a fad diet. I'm just saying, right. and then when their weight goes back down, well, you know, I, I kind of like McDonald's and then they fall mm -hmm. off the wagon a little bit. Healthcare's done the same thing. And HMOs were a diet to lower costs. They worked for a while. Cost, you know, inflation got under control for a little bit and then they fell out of favor. So when you look at something like if you you have your you have an average young healthy person I mean we can we can even use me as an example I worked for a former employer that offered me a PPO plan an HMO plan and an HSA plan as part of the employee health insurance and the HMO plan of course when I this I had this job right after college so I also didn't really know what I was doing too much but I looked at it and on paper I saw that the HMO plan was going to cost me half as much a month as what the PPO plan did. And in my thought process, I thought, well, I'm generally healthy. If I have to go see my primary care physician first before I go see a specialist, I don't think that's that big of a deal. So is there still a place for HMO plans for, for younger, healthy people that may not even need to go to the doctor very much? Um, there is. And, and typically, the HMO plans um, are attractive to small employer groups, too. Mm -hmm. um, it's a way to provide benefits at a lower cost. Um, for a lot of the small employer groups, they could say to their employees, look, if I didn't do this, I, I wouldn't be able to offer you anything. I can't afford mm -hmm. the PPO. Right. But you also bring up another an interesting thing that became a problem with HMOs is there was a concern that they siphoned off the young, healthy people. Um, <laughs> the people like you said, look, I don't mind following the rules because I'm never going to go to the doctor or I'm only going to go once a year. I really want this for sort of catastrophic coverage. And HMOs did attract younger, healthier people. Um, so if an, if an individual employer group offered both an HMO and a PPO, the young, healthy people went to the HMO. Typically, the older type, more sick people stayed in the PPO, and that could create a problem for it. So there's a place for HMOs. I think it's a product that you know, there are some employers and some people who still like it. I just don't think it's going to become the overwhelming um, product in our market or in this society because we don't like restrictions. You know, we like freedom. Right. Um, and that's the attractiveness of the PPO. And, and that's what it sounds like you described is it, it had kind of its flourishing. And now it's it's one of those things that, hey, it's still around. And it's kind of one of these weird things that some people can still get. Yeah. Do, do you see any of that um, siphoning happening with uh, the, the the exchange or healthcare.gov with the people with the younger people that got health care because they were required to? Otherwise, they would have been taxed uh, under the under the individual mandate. Do you see the same sort of thing happening there where younger people were getting higher deductible plans that they weren't really going to use and that siphons people away from the other from the other kind of more comprehensive plans? Well, actually, that was one of the concerns when the Affordable Care Act was being built was that it would siphon off people from the other employer plans and leave the employers with a 
sicker population, if you will. And it's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why they put in the provision that says, if you are employed by an employer that offers you insurance, even if it's really expensive for you to buy that insurance, and let's say you don't make much money. So let's say you're you're working a $10 an hour job, Mm -hmm. okay? And your employer offers insurance, but you have to pay half of the premium out of pocket. Well, you would actually be better off not taking that insurance, going to the exchange, and at your current salary at 10 bucks an hour, you're gonna get better coverage highly subsidized by the government. So you'd be Mm -hmm. much better off. The problem is, and they did this on purpose, was you don't qualify for the subsidy under the exchange because you work at an employer who offered you insurance and you turned it down. Right. That was specifically designed to keep young, healthy people from siphoning out of the employer pool and into the government exchange pool. Um, and so that was that was a design to keep that from happening. So it sounds like that regardless of what one's opinions might be about the Affordable Care Act in general, there was at least a few things that they got right when designing it. Yeah, yeah. The way I look at the Affordable Care Act is um, it's not that they did it poorly. It's that it was sold as one thing, which it was never really, in my opinion, designed to be. And what I mean by that is if they had set up front, look, what this is going to do is going to lower the uninsured population a fair amount by giving people who otherwise wouldn't be able to get insurance an opportunity to get it. It's not going to lower health care cost, and you know it's not going to pay for itself. Um, it's going to just lower the uninsured, and it's going to cost us some money to do so. That would have been truth in advertising, and that's exactly what it did. The problem is that's a, that truth in advertising is tough to sell in D.C. So mm-hmm. they said well, this is going to pay for itself. It's going to lower health care costs. Everything's going to be much better, and it's going to lower the uninsured. And the first two things, in my opinion, it was never really designed to do, and it didn't do it. So, um, yeah, there, there are things that they got right in it for what it was. The problem is they just sort of advertised it as a whole lot more than that. Now, before we move on to the HSA thing, I I have a quick uh, structure question for you because you've worked in the insurance industry a long time. You've worked for a lot of the major um, a lot of the major carriers, and, and perhaps it might be different where I was here in Michigan. But the, the former plan I had was was an HMO with Blue Cross Blue Shield. But here in Michigan, it appears that Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, which does their PPO plans, is different from the organization that does their HMO plan, which is called Blue Care Network. Can you talk a little bit about how some of these insurance companies structure with these different plans and, and how they differ from state to state, perhaps? Yeah, so the the Blue Cross plans are sort of a a different scenario on their own. And -hmm. it's because of the association, the Blue Cross Association. So the best way to think of individual Blue Cross plans are their licensees of the association. It's like a franchise. Okay. It's like you can own a Subway restaurant, but you're licensing that name from a corporation. Mm -hmm. That licensure has some requirements on it. And in some of the Blue Cross plans, not all, and Michigan's one of them, and and one of the ones I worked at, Capital Blue Cross in Pennsylvania, was similar. They wanted to have a for-profit HMO, but their license with the Blue Cross Association was a non-profit licensure. So in my plan that I worked for at Capital Blue Cross, um, we had a for-profit Blue Cross or for-profit HMO plan, but we couldn't call it Blue Cross. Okay. Okay. It had to have a different name because it was sort of outside the lesser. Michigan's Blue Cross, same thing. So this for-profit HMO that they run, they've got to call it something else. It's sort of like saying, well, I own a Subway restaurant and I want to do something else with a different menu. I want to serve tacos, but Subway doesn't let me serve tacos. My agreement with them says I have to serve their menu. So right next door, I open up another shop and I call it Ron's Tacos. Okay, that's fine. I can do that because I'm not calling it a Subway. That's the same thing. And that's why your Michigan plan has a different HMO is because their Blue Cross licensure doesn't really allow them to do it the way they wanted to do it under that Blue Cross name. And I guess then, what would the advantage be for Blue, for Blue Cross? And if, they, if, if there's less people on the HMO, why is it important for them to have that as a for-profit entity as opposed to the non-profit entity? Um, it allows them to do different things 
with the money that they make. And a lot of those for-profit HMOs end up being very profitable. Mm-hmm. It allows them to do different things with executive compensation and all that stuff. So it, it literally is a, it's a financial decision. Not every plan does it. So for example, right. in North Carolina, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield in North Carolina doesn't have a separate for-profit HMO. They sell HMO products under the Blue Cross Association, but then they roll that money up under that nonprofit status. I want to move on now to talk about a, a third product that I've got out here, and, and one that seems to have gained a little bit of traction in recent years. And I know um, there are some popular uh, financial planners out there that really like to promote these, Dave Ramsey being one of them, and that's that's the health savings account or the HSA. Mm-hmm. What is an HSA, and how did it get started, and re- really, when did it get started? So um, HSAs, I don't know the exact date, HSAs were started when there was a um, a change in the tax law that allowed people, and this was started because we started to see patient out-of-pocket, deductibles, um, those kind of things go up. They became a bigger and bigger chunk of everybody's cost, if you will, for the consumer. Um, and so there was a change in the tax law that allowed you to put money into a, um, a tax-free savings account, if you will, mm-hmm. to cover medical expenses. So it was a way to say, hey, if I know... I've got this $10,000 deductible, I can take some money, you know, pre-tax, put it in this account, and then when I pay those bills, I pay them out of that account with sort of pre-tax money. And, and you know, it was sort of this idea of, it's, it's a little bit like a 401k. You know, I'm saving for retirement with my 401k, but with my HSA, I'm saving for a future medical bill. Mm-hmm. And, and some of the examples were, hey, if you know you're going to start a family and you're going to get pregnant, and you know that that delivery is going to cost you $5,000, you know, start saving now and pay it with pre-tax money rather than post-tax money. It's a wonderful idea. The problem with HSAs are, with, and, and it's the same problem with you know, 401ks, the people who could use the most value from it are people who tend to not be of higher incomes, but they're also the very same people who can't afford to take money pre-tax and put it into account. They need their entire paycheck just to pay rent and gas and buy food. Mm-hmm. So the very people who would benefit most from it are the very people who can't do it. Um, and that's one of the reasons why the HSA hasn't gotten more popular than it already than it is, and it's really not, doesn't. It's not that popular is because the vast majority of the people really can't divert another hundred bucks out of their paycheck. They need that for rent and gas and food. And what I was doing when I, I did a little bit of digging earlier this week on, on HSAs, and one of the things that I discovered as well is that you're, you cannot get one unless you have a qualifying high deductible plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and there are enough people now that qualify with high deductible plans that, um, that, that they could get it. But again, a lot of those people who have a high deductible plan also tend to be lower income and can't afford to do it. You know? Right. And a, and a recent study by Value Penguin and Lending Tree actually determined that it, in 2020, over half of people who have health insurance with their employer have a high deductible mm-hmm. health plan that yep. has you know significant out-of-pocket costs with deductibles and, and co-insurance requirements. And um, in, a, in a recent forecast, about three quarters of patients and employee sponsor plans will have those high deductible mm-hmm. uh, plans. So I want to I want to switch gears a little bit now and talk about out of pocket costs. And this may be an instance where we just have to pull out our insurance card and look and see, you know, what do these numbers mean when I'm looking at my insurance card? And I guess one is the difference. First, I guess first we'll start off with this. What is your deductible and where does that money come from? So the deductible is, and there's some some nuances to this, and I'll get to mm-hmm. that in a second, is basically you're going to pay the first X dollars of medical expense before your insurance kicks in. Now, there, okay. you know, in a second, I'll talk about the things that are excluded from that. It's the same thing as your auto insurance deductible, where they say, look, if, you've got, if I've got an auto insurance with a $500 deductible and I get into an accident and it costs $3,000 to fix the car, the first $500 are on me, the next $2,500 are on the insurance company. Mm-hmm. Now, in health insurance, there are some things and some plans that don't count towards your deductible. 
typically those will be things like wellness visits or PCP visits, mm -hmm. where you may have a copay, a $20 copay or $40 copay. But you don't have to pay for the first you know, $5,000 of wellness visits. Those don't count towards your deductible. Those start dollar one. And those are typically things that they want to either incentivize you to do, like wellness visits or primary care visits, mm -hmm. um, ra rather than saying, well, I don't want to go get my, my, you know, my cholesterol checked because I'd have to pay the full visit. visit. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, the deductible is just you're, you're on the hook for those dollars and then the insurance company kicks in. And so right next, if you're looking like on your online portal or wherever you have right next to your deductible, you have your out-of-pocket out of maximum. And what, what is that number? It's exactly what it says, which is, let's say you've got a $5,000 deductible and a 20% coinsurance. Mm -hmm. And you have a transplant, okay? And it's $500,000 worth of cost. Okay, well, 20% of $500,000 it's a hundred thousand dollars. Okay, so you're out of pocket. And let's say, and I'm just using easy numbers. Let's yep. say your out of pocket maximum is fifty thousand dollars. That means that you're going to pay that first deductible. Then you're going to start paying twenty percent. But when you hit fifty thousand dollars of out of pocket expense for you, the insurance company kicks in and pays everything else. That's the maximum out of pocket you're going to pay, and it's usually per year. So mm -hmm. it resets just like your deductible resets every year. And that's just to show you that in worst case scenario, that's the maximum amount of your bill that you're gonna have to pay this year. It's usually a pretty high number for mm -hmm. most people, right. but at least there's a max there. And when you get into a family plan, it gets even higher because then each, I think it's each person in the plan has to meet their out of pocket maximum. Now, Is that correct? A lot of plans will have an individual and a family total out of pocket okay. max. So, you know, if you had um, seven children, and two adults, you know, you'd have each one will have their individual, but you also have a family total out of pocket max in most most plans. So then just just to make sure I'm clarifying and understanding, right? So when, when you look at your insurance card and it's got a price on there for your primary care physician and your specialist and your urgent mm -hmm. care and your ER, you know, it's got your it's got your in network responsibility there. Mm -hmm. When you're looking at that, those numbers do not count towards your towards your deductible. Well, no. What or I'm it depends saying, on the plan. So the the amount that you paid. So if let's say there's a ten dollar copay for your primary care physician, mm -hmm. that ten dollars will accumulate in your deductible. Okay. The point is, you don't have to pay that full bill. You just right. pay the ten bucks. Yep. Okay. No, this is good. I, I think doing uh, the, we're doing basically what we're doing is a little bit of insurance one hundred and one, and that's good for I think everyone to have a refresher on oh, that because yeah. you, you never want to buy into a product without really understanding how it works and healthcare and most, being one of the most expensive things that's a that's not a cheap investment and most people really don't understand it and that's unfortunate so let's look at uh we, we you know we i've been citing a little bit from this article from real clear health uh, earlier this week called the out-of-pocket cost Ponzi scheme. It's by William Smith and Robert Pavavian. And I'll make sure that this is linked in the show notes for today's program. And it's available at flatlining.net. And one of the things that they talk about is uh, some of these copay assistance programs offered by some of the drug companies. You know, I mentioned at the beginning of the program that drug costs are what is what usually you hear from your local politician, you know, is one of the driving costs of healthcare. But it, as we've been talking about, one of the bigger driving out-of-pocket costs for people is the out-of-pocket cost, less so the drug cost. What are the what are these um, copay assistance programs, and how do they benefit patients? Um, for well, drugs, me, that is. Yeah, let me take a step back and do sure, some go building ahead. blocks because it'll, yes. it'll make the explanation of the copay cards better. Go ahead. So for decades now, there's been this ongoing. Um, fight, if you will, move, counter move between the big pharma or the pharmacy manufacturers and insurance companies. And it was de designed around this understanding that for a lot of conditions, there are multiple drugs that could help that condition. And so, and they call them drug classes. So if I'm a drug manufacturer and I have a drug for MS, and I know that several of my competitors also have a drug, okay? 
Well, my goal is to try to push as much market share. I want I want you to buy my product more mm-hmm. than their others. No different than Ford and Chevy and Toyota and Honda all compete for market share. So the first round of this was the insurance companies doing formularies, where if you were on formulary, it was benefit. And if you weren't, you didn't have benefit. And that would drive market share. And to be honest, the way that drugs got on formulary was how much of a kickback you gave the insurance company to get on their formulary. And so, you know, basically it was, hey, if you you put me on the formulary, I'll give you X dollars back each time our prescription's written. And the insurance company loved it. The pharma didn't like it. Mm. Well, then the pharma pharmacy industry got smart and said, hey, you know what? We can go around the insurance companies and we can go directly to the consumer and get them to want our drug and they'll put pressure on the insurance companies. And thus, the direct-to-consumer advertising was born. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, and this years ago, we started to get TV ads. You want the purple pill. And, you know, more people know if you say you want the purple pill that that's Prilosec and what it does than know who their current senator is. Right. Okay, so it's very... And suddenly the pharma won and they got around these formularies by going to the consumer. And then the payers said, wait a minute, we got a new move. We know you're going to go to the consumer. They're going to want the purple pill. We'll just make the purple pill expensive. So we'll have these. Your benefit is based on how much kickback we get. And we'll make that into a different drug tier. And so when they go to the pharmacy and they say, oh, we see you got Prilosec, that's $100. And the person goes, oh, my goodness. And the pharmacist says, well, you know, on your plan, this other pill is only $50. Okay, well, get me that. Mm-hmm. Well, now then the drug companies went, darn it. Okay, we've got a great idea to fix that. We'll do these copay assistance cards. So basically, they go directly to the pharmacies and they say, hey, when somebody comes in, and I'm just picking on Prilosec. It happens for mm-hmm. more expensive drugs than that. But, hey, when somebody comes in with Prilosec and it's supposed to be 100 bucks." and this other drug's 50, tell them that we, the manufacturer, will give them a six-month drug assistance copay card to cover the other 50. So now we've neutralized it, and we'll get the business, okay? Mm-hmm. Well, now the insurance companies didn't like that because, again, what they're looking for is rebates and kickbacks and that stuff. So then they say, wait a minute. Okay, fine. If you do that, that doesn't count towards your accumulator for your deductible. You know, we don't like that. So we're not going to let you count that even though you paid the 100 bucks to the pharmacy and then you got rebated directly from the, the manufacturer, your 50 bucks back, we're only going to count the 50 bucks there. And so mm-hmm. it's this tit for tat on trying to maneuver around what drug the pharmacy, the insurance company wants you to buy and the pharmacy, the manufacturer is trying to drive market share. Now, the wants you to buy can either be a function of is actually cheaper, um, or it can be a function of I get a better rebate or a combination of the both. But it's a pretty distasteful marketplace because it just it, it feels wrong, you know, with all this money changing hands instead of it being just what's best for the patient. Right. And it seems to get more and more complex each time they try to change something. Of course, then that gets frustrating for the the patient to try and follow as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's why people don't like it. So when we're looking out of pocket for drug costs, I mean, you have a you have a couple different ways to pay. It sounds you could just pay straight up cash, you know, for whatever the drug is when you go to the pharmacy. The other option is to use your, you know, your pharmacy benefits with your insurance plan. And the third option seems to be the um, the the copay card, the copay assistance, rather, that you might have through some of these drug companies. You've also seen now in recent years TV advertising for basically what seems to be some of these coupon cards for for drugs. How do those factor into this uh, equation for out-of-pocket drug costs? Well, yeah, and these, these coupon cards... Um, was a, a market reaction to a system that was starting to get broken, and it was really sort of ingenious. What the system realized was that there's so much of this kickback going around, you know, that the, the retail pharmacy would have to kick back to be part of the insurance company's network, and then there was a rebate from the manufacturer, et cetera, that they went, wait a minute, if we could get rid of all of that 
and just have the person pay cash, they might get a better deal. Mm -hmm. And so these networks, these online coupon cards or networks went around and were going to the big pharmacy chain and said, hey, if somebody just bypassed all that stuff, meaning that you pharmacy wouldn't have to give your piece back and you wouldn't have to do all that other stuff, and they just showed a little code, tell me how much you're willing to sell a lot of these drugs for if you could get rid of all that other crap. And sometimes it's cheaper than the person actually using their insurance, as odd as that sounds. Mm -hmm. And so that's how they develop. They're, they're working in a lot of areas. And for a lot of patients, for a lot of drugs, it makes sense. And so they just go, fine, don't even send it to my insurance company. I'll pay you the $13 for my, you know, my statin. Because if I use my insurance card, it's $25. And as ridiculous as that sounds, that's what happens in a lot of cases. So with some of those coupon cards, do you see, I mean, what kind of drugs do you see where it makes sense to use that versus where it doesn't? Like if you had, you know, you say like a statin, you know, for example, you might pay 13 as opposed to 25, but for something like, you know, a Zofran prescription, it might be more than what you would pay through your insurance company. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's typically the drugs that are high volume, typically low cost to manufacture. Mm -hmm. um, typically they're drugs with multiple different um, drugs in the same class. Um, and typically they're maintenance drugs. So you're not gonna find the latest and greatest chemotherapy agent on there. You're not gonna find drugs that are um, the only drug in their class and still on patent. You're gonna find stuff like antibiotics like, you know, the statins are a perfect example. You know, they're Coke or Pepsi. Um, it's a maintenance drug. It's off patent. It's typically, you know, low cost to manufacture. They've been stamping these, you know, pills out for years. And that's the ones where it typically helps you. It's not the really uber expensive drugs. Those don't typically help you on those. So basically what it sounds like, the things that, you know, are, are fairly common and there's a generic of. Mm -hmm. But for some people, if I'm going to take a statin and a, and a Zetia gut agent or whatever every month, for a lot of people, if I can save 15 bucks a month on each prescription, okay, I, I'm easy, happy to do it. That's right. You know, that's good money for me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So with this sense, then, is, is there any sense that, that you see where this might be reformed between the pharmaceutical companies and the drug companies now that some of these, I mean, now you have, you know, celebrity endorsements of some of these coupon cards, mm -hmm. um, uh, Martin Sheen being one of them that I could think of. So do you think that there's any reform in the future so it'll, it'll, it would be easier and more clear cut for insurance companies and pharmaceuticals to just, you know, pay a, a reasonable amount for some of these drugs? I, I, in the very near future, I don't see it because, you know, there's, there's too much money being made in the way the game is currently played for the rest of the drugs to worry about this. This, these copay or these uh, coupon cards, the, the payers and the manufacturers view that as almost leakage. And it's not, it's not enough to worry about. They're going after the big dollar stuff and there's still a lot of money to be made in that game by keeping the, the rules of the game the same. So I, I don't see we're gonna see any reform from it from the pharma or the payers. Um, and there's no way for them to really block it. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, mm -hmm. I think it's gonna be there for a while. I wanna, this is gonna sound like a little bit of a tangent, but I, I think I can bring it back around to what we're talking about. Earlier this week, uh, a number of Michigan hospitals announced that they are you know, severely short-staffed with nurses because either they were pointing out that in some places, nurses are leaving healthcare in general because they can have less stressful jobs that you know pay roughly the same right now uh, for what they're doing. And some are, you know, it's hard to come by. So the rate, the, you know, the, you know, the, cost of having a nurse is coming up and as some of these news organizations including michigan radio pointed out that you have uh you know hospitals can't just charge more to the insurance companies because they're locked into contracts and you know we know this well at fulcrum strategies because that's the majority of what we do mm -hmm. so right now are things like a shortage of nurses high inflation are these what are the primary drivers of high out-of-pocket costs right now oh no no, the high okay. out-of-pocket cost happened much before this current environment. Um, 
so this has been a trend on high out-of-pocket costs for quite some time. The nursing shortage, and everybody's facing it, is very recent. Mm-hmm. Um, it may make this high out-of-pocket stuff worse, um, but that'll be down the road a bit. So it, it's not at all related. So then going back then, let's let's rewind to, to where you think that these costs started to go up to the point where it's become unsustainable for many Americans. You know, what what is driving up out-of-pocket costs? Well, the, so the out-of-pocket cost driver is the same thing that's been driving up healthcare total cost. Okay. You know, where out-of-pocket cost came from is really, you know, healthcare inflation inflating faster than general inflation and employers looking for a way to offset that. So basically the conversations are and, and again, it's no different than auto insurance. I mean, there are auto insurance companies that advertise, what premium do you want? You know, name mm-hmm. your premium, and then we'll tell you how much benefit you get. Um, what the, the conversations were, you know, the, the insurance company would come to the employer and say, hey, we've got to give you a 12% increase in your premium. And the employer CFO would go, wow, that's going to cut into my profits. Uh, I can only increase the price of my product by 4% in my market. Well, gosh, I can't afford a 12% increase. What can I do? Well, if you move your deductible from $1,000 to $5,000, that premium increase goes from 12% to 3%. Okay, done. You know, right. And so it, it's just been this year after year way of employers saying, I can't afford the price of that. Then give me lesser benefits to what I can't afford. The problem is that just pushes those costs on to the, to the employee. So then it sounds like with a lot of these, um, you know, problems where we talk about rising costs of healthcare, it always seems to boil down to the same, you know, similar solutions. You know, we have a large, um, well, very well accessible system with very high quality care. And we have a, portion of the population that needs a lot of that care mm-hmm. yeah and 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 we've got and so we've got just what you said and we've got an inflationary system where for decades now healthcare has been rising in cost faster than general inflation chewing up more and more money and we have a propensity to want to pay for things on a credit card mm-hmm. or push that payment off to somebody else. The employers do it through you know, pushing it off to the employee. Um, it's just moving the cost to somebody else's balance sheet. The government does it through big deficits. Um, you know, the government, for example, you know, if you think of them and what they have to pay for, Medicare and Medicaid, like an employer who says, well, I can't pay for that increase in Medicare, cost, well, then I'll just finance it by deficit financing. Right. Um, it's a similar kind of a thing. It's we're just saying that future generations are going to have to pay for that. So I want to switch a little bit to this is more a little bit, I guess, of, of uh, employer ethics right now. Would you say that it would be better for an employer to lower salaries, but then provide a lower cost healthcare plan to their employees with lower out-of-pocket uh, maximums. Better for the employer to either offer lower salary and better benefits. Yeah, either have you, yeah, the, you have a higher salary with a high out-of-pocket maximum or, or, or a lower salary with a yeah. lower out-of-pocket maximum. So, um, and there's been a lot of data on this. In okay. general, for most employers, it is much better to offer higher salary and lower benefits. And okay. here's why. Twofold. One, the vast majority of people, and we've we've talked about this in previous shows. You know, five percent of all the consumers chew up fifty percent of the medical expense. Right. And the bottom fifty percent chew up five percent. So, the vast majority of people you're trying to attract as an employee don't care as much about what the out of pocket is because they're not going to use it, but they do care about the salary. Mm-hmm. And, and you hear employers all the time saying, "I lost somebody from for this job over." two bucks an hour, you know, or a dollar an hour, okay? The other thing is, and think about from the employer's perspective, the people who really do care about the benefits are typically those people who are gonna use them. They know they have an ongoing health issue or they know they're gonna have a baby or they're not gonna, and what comes with high healthcare utilization 
is lower um, on jo- on site job, you know, more time off. So, mm-hmm. gosh, if I'm an employer, I could cater to the people who are going to use my insurance more and be at work less, or I could cater to the young, healthy people who are going to use it less, be at work more, and if they're young and healthy, typically are cheaper employees. Gosh, that's a no-brainer. It's in my best interest mm-hmm. to do higher salary, lower benefits. Now, that's for, for most employers. There's there's some that are in niche markets or whatever that need very specialized right. talent, and they have typically have to do both, higher pay and higher benefits to treat, recruit that talent. And plus, too, it kind of boils down to exactly what you were talking about with the preference of PPOs over HMOs. It, you mean you put more cash into the pocket of an employee, they have more choice to then go purchase, you know, what other other plans they might want to purchase. Right. right. Yep. So then as I want to go ahead and just recap kind of the stuff we've talked about, because this is, like I said before, it's kind of been a one, it's been a one Oh one healthcare one Oh one, you know, health insurance one Oh one kind of session today. So we talked about uh, where you can get your different plans. You have your employer based plans, which is what the majority of Americans are on. Some people go out and, and buy their own, uh, directly from the insurance company, and others buy them from uh, healthcare.gov or the the marketplace in their state. Uh, you also have people that are on Medicare and Medicaid plans as well. And the majority of those are PPOs, and those are the ones that you can see pretty much whoever you'd want to see, and, and you have a large, generally a large network in your state of people that you can see. I guess then, you know, I'm going to pop in here and ask another question. You know, we talked about Blue Cross being a bunch of different affiliates in each state, uh, effectively, you know, licensees. How is it that you know their their plans can transfer across state lines in in a similar way to your your Aetna's and your Uniteds that are you know national plans? Um. So or can they in the same they, way? I guess. Well, they they can, um, in that sort of. Let me explain the difference. So, sure. Um, and this is goes under the association rules. So a Blue Cross of North Carolina cannot sell a plan to an employer who is based in Michigan. Okay. okay that violates their association rules. It's sort of like a you know, territory thing. Mm-hmm. And the Blue Cross of North Carolina is only licensed in North Carolina, so they couldn't sell that plan in Michigan. Now, what they can do, and this is what they call interplan reciprocity, is I can sell an employer group that's based in North Carolina that has an employee in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Or several employees. I could have a, a a group that's based in North Carolina, and they have sales reps in twenty other states. Right. Okay. That's fine. And what they do is they use the payer contracts or the the uh, the insurance contracts that those other Blue Cross plans have, and they have to have access to those. The association requires that. Just like a, a the Michigan Blue Cross can sell a plan that's sitest in Michigan, and has an employee in North Carolina. So it's mm-hmm. a quid pro quo. The Nationals, Cigna United, the way that they can go cross state lines, et cetera, is they're licensed in every state. Okay. So they don't have a problem with that. But um, so those are sort of the rules on how that works. And Anthem, which will soon be named Elevance, is we, we didn't talk about that last week, although I think it was in one of the, the intro headlines. They're rebranding to be Elevance. Anthem then is licensed in a couple of different states, it seems. Yeah, they've got, and I, I'll get the numbers wrong. They've got, I think, like 15 or 18 states that they're that are anthem states um, that they're licensed in. So what it comes what it comes down to is that if your if your employer is giving you a Blue Cross plan that doesn't happen to be in the state that you live in, then it's you're probably okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So PPO plans, large networks, HMOs, slightly less popular, well, significantly less popular, but with lower premiums. Um, we talked about that. And then you got the HSAs. I guess out-of-pocket costs then are kind of a necessary evil in the insurance system that we have, especially the employer-based system that we have in the United States. Um, yeah, and, and there's, there's a couple of pieces to it. And this, when the HMO f- craze first happened, a lot of HMOs had very little, if any, in out-of-pocket cost, and that was part of their attraction. Hey, get in the HMO. You don't have to pay a copay. One mm-hmm. of the things they realized is utilization went up, that mm-hmm. if you have zero cost to anything, people will use it more. 
Okay, so right. it's it's just like the and the the sort of the analogy they used was it's like well gosh what we did was we just put healthcare as like a Vegas all you can eat buffet mm-hmm. you know people fill their plate up more if they think it's free so there's some necessity to some out of pocket costs so you don't have unnecessary utilization of the system the question becomes how high is that before you start really crushing the people who really need it because now they can't afford it. And that's that's been the same critique that we've had for the various uh, universal healthcare systems that have been proposed in the United States, that as soon as you give people free healthcare that wouldn't normally go to see their doctor for the common cold, all, all of a sudden going to start doing that because they can. Yeah. I, you know, I was, I, this was a few years ago, I was on a panel discussion and it was like opening remarks and it was about universal health care and everything. And the, the gentleman to my left, you know, his opening remarks was, you know, health care is a right. We should make it free. Everybody in America should get free health care. And, you know, was making that argument. And it came to me and I said, look, you know, we have a problem with cost in this country. Making health care free for everybody would be a little bit like having an open bar to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. You know, that's the last thing you want to do. Right. You know, have a bunch of alcoholics have an open free bar. Um, And that's the same reason is because it'll just drive up utilization. And I guess, too, you know, we were, you know, we were criticized last week for not being for patient choice. But with patient choice, uh, with the out of with at least when you have out of pocket costs, and I'm not advocating that everyone have a high deductible, you know, high out of cost, high out of pocket cost plan. But at least when you have some sort of out of pocket cost, you're still connected to how much your health care is worth. And that, you, that can help you judge what decisions and what choices you're going to make. Yeah, it, absolutely. You know, I, I use the same. It's that thing about the consumer not being the purchaser. If there's no out-of-pocket cost or no consequences to your purchasing decisions, we make irrational decisions. And the analogy mm-hmm. I use because it, it brings it home is if, if, if as an employer I offered my employees a benefit of I'll give them a brand new car every two years and they only have to pay the first $500, right. well then basically the consequences of their purchasing decisions are irrelevant to them. Well, if I did that, everybody in my company would be driving a Ferrari, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't blame them. So that's why we don't, you know, you shouldn't do that. Now, it, like you say, it, it doesn't say we're advocating for everybody to have to pay $10,000 before their insurance kicks in. Right. Not at all. But there has to be some skin in the game, if you will. Well, with that, we've pretty much uh, run out of our time limit for this week. Ron, I want to thank you for sitting down and doing this as you always do. We appreciate it. No problem. Happy to. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies, copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also sign up for our weekly newsletters at Flatlining.net. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a great week. <laughs>